0: Consequence Podcast Network. Okay, everyone, as a first foray into the conversation that we're going to be having, and in lieu of a bit, I just have a I what to me is an extremely important question. Did we witness the first 10-year-old child winning a, a wrestling belt in recorded history? Was that like as monumental as it seemed?
1: I have seen babies win matches, but I've not seen them actually win titles. Wow. I will say yeah. that.
2: I think you, WrestleMania 434 rather, really broke some new ground here.
3: <laughs> it was the sixth sense of uh, WrestleMania's in terms <laughs> of introducing awards to very young people.
0: Is it safe to say that we are all Team Nicholas? Because I'm super hard for Team Nicholas.
3: Oh, definitely. Uh, d- did he end up going on Raw?
1: He did. And he had to relinquish the title because he has the fourth no. grade. But don't worry, once he graduates uh, high school, everyone's going to get these hands, so you should be really excited (laughs) for that.
0: (laughs) Well, on that auspicious note, welcome to TV Party. <laughs> I'm Allison Shoemaker.
3: I'm Clint Worthington.
0: And we've got two bona fide wrestling experts with us today. Say hello to the people. Hello, the people. I'm Latoya Ferguson.
2: Hello, the people as well. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer.
0: this is our first just do this for me full edition of tv party a couple of weeks ago i introduced clint to the wild weird wonderful world of rupaul's drag race but in this case he and i both sat through our very first wrestlemania latoya and dominic who have have had that experience many times over are going to share with us (laughs) what we uh, need to know to even begin to comprehend whatever the hell that was and their insight and a bunch of other really good stuff. Um, first, we are going to talk about the TV of the week, which I'm really excited about, starting with news. Clint, what exciting shit happened this week?
3: Well, uh, one big crazy thing happened a couple of days ago that I think is worth talking about. Uh, the Simpsons finally addressed, question mark, the whole problem with Apu issue that uh, was raised in the documentary the same name. And the response was unsatisfactory to say the least. Uh, just including this basically fourth wall breaking bit about like, hey, well people think Apu's racist now. What are you gonna do?
0: Did either, LaToya, Dominic, did either of you watch this episode? I did not.
1: Uh, I don't watch The Simpsons and I think I've, I've <laughs> made a good choice at this point in life, at least right now.
2: And I actually did manage to catch it and I mean, I'm going to just echo the take that you've generally seen on Twitter for the past 48 hours as it is. It is the very vision of a show that's been on the air for too goddamn long. It is just, it feels, it's very old man yells at cloud, ironically enough. And I feel like of all the lazy ways they could have engaged with a lot of the dialogue around the character... They chose the laziest, which was to throw up their hands and go, "Stop taking it so seriously." It's it's the South Park out for a show that's supposed to be the trailblazer for South Park and other shows like it. Does this mean that it's the children who are wrong? It, apparently, the children are wrong. Uh huh. But no, I I also think it's just a little bit deflating. To see, and again, this point's been made elsewhere as well, but to see Lisa Simpson being the vessel through which they try to communicate this lazy point, it was just, I mean, no one has any delusions that The Simpsons is good anymore. I don't think anyone making The Simpsons thinks it's all that good anymore. But at the same time, it still just keeps digging its hole deeper and deeper. If you're not going to address the criticisms in your writing of the character, don't,
3: me- just don't bring it up. Like, this was almost worse than doing nothing. This was just thumbing your nose at the people who are, like, have genuine grievance with it.
0: Uh, I found it really frustrating. I have not yet seen The Problem with a poo. I'm not a huge Simpsons fan. I was when I was, I didn't watch when I was a kid because I was not allowed to, um, but Sort of in my teenage college years, I watched a lot of The Simpsons. I've sort of fallen off since then and just never got around to seeing The Problem with the poo. which I'll be curious if any of you saw it. I hear really excellent things, but thought, well, I guess I should probably catch this, which seems to have been the point, um, not actually engaging with the conversation, but just finding a way to be relevant and timely again. Um, and for me, the thing that really bothered me, among other things, was the fact that of all people, they put this in Lisa's mouth like the character most un who, for whom it would be m- the most unlikely for them to be dismissive of this kind of conversation um was really bothersome and that they dragged my beloved Frances Hodgson Burnett into this mess you leave the secret garden alone that is not okay
3: yeah it, it was really disturbing because she if they had made an episode if they had made an episode discussing this lisa would have been the one supporting the people who are who have very valid issues with apu
0: well, I mean, I think the, Latoya hasn't seen it. The rest of us are uh, generally anti. Is there anything else we need to add on this particular topic?
1: This was a, a, a bad take they decided to air on television, that's for sure. I did see the documentary. Uh, like, I, I too, as a child, wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons, so it's never, like, been that big in my lexicon, but I did watch the documentary, and I think it was a valid, valid point. So, of course, it's it, it just... The PC police, obviously.
3: Yeah, and I think the uh, the backlash on Twitter, like the the defenses of that take are particularly weak, because I mean it's not like people are asking for, you know, the character to be, you know, not not necessarily like removed, but at least like address the criticisms, flesh out the characters so he's a little more three dimensional. Um, but uh, unless we have anything else to add to this, there is another exciting piece of news over in TV party land, which is we got the CW renewals.
0: Yeah, that CW renewals were so exciting that it makes up for the fact that in addition to dragging my beloved The Secret Garden into this mess, they also dirty Daniel Radcliffe's name. You get a Daniel Radcliffe cameo and you spoil it on an episode like that, that is bullshit. The CW is doing better. Um, they renewed almost all of their slate. The only show that I'm particularly engaged with that seems to still be hanging in the balance is *iZombie*, zombie, um, which I'll be very bummed if *iZombie* zombie doesn't get renewed, but crazy ex girlfriend is coming back for a final season. Jane, the Virgin is coming back for what's rumored to be its final season. Uh, all of the Arrowverse shows are returning, which including black lightning, which is sort of Arrowverse, sort of not Arrowverse, but, um, uh, Black Lightning is coming back. Our beloved Legends is coming back. You'll hear more about Legends later. It's all super-duper good news.
1: I'm going to assume that iZombie will get renewed, and probably for a final season, because CW is pretty good about that in general. Uh, I'm assuming maybe the season could possibly work as a final one, but if they wanted to get a real one, I think CW would allow that. And, of course, I'm super excited Legends of Tomorrow got renewed. I wasn't worried about it, but I'm just... Just happy to, to, to... I'm excited to talk about Legends of Tomorrow.
3: As are we all. Um, but uh, what else What else news-wise happened? Uh, there's a new High Fidelity series, right? And I believe John Cusack had some thoughts on it, too.
2: Having written the Consequences Sound news post for that, I can say that he did, in fact, have some poorly spelled thoughts on it. So, it's funny that this news came out, because I actually just rewatched High Fidelity over the weekend... And it's a movie that I still really like. There's a lot of great throwaway lines in it, which is my favorite kind of comedy. And I think it's a little smarter than it sometimes gets credit for, for being a really abrasive take against that kind of dude. The thesis of High Fidelity is that you're not supposed to want to be Rob Gordon. The problem is a lot of young men watch that movie and do not get that point away from it. So I think, if anything... On the one hand, I think it could actually improve by being, as has been said, a little less abrasive and female-fronted. But, as Allison and I were discussing yesterday before taping the show, at the same time, High Fidelity is such an aggressively male story that it's hard to suss out where it would go from here, in some respects at least.
0: Yeah, I am only one woman, but LaToya, let me know if you can imagine this. I just don't know any female or female identifying person in my life who would think I'm having some sort of a crisis, personal crisis. The thing that's going to make this better for me is I'm going to actively seek out each and every one of my exes. That's just not a thing. Perhaps I'm wrong in assuming that that would be a thing for dudes either, but I certainly have been contacted by male exes. I would never go out of my way to like try to figure out why things didn't work out with people that either I broke up with or who broke up with me from decades ago that would never be a thing for me I don't understand the grand tour of romantic ruin in in one's past um and it has always felt to me like a very male story just putting a woman in the lead just doesn't make any sense to me
1: thinking about the possibility of ever doing that gives me intense anxiety I would rather just uh dwell on uh my past failures uh, in, in the relationship game which is <laughs> so you, you obviously have uh, a, a very bold female character which I, I i support completely i would say i'm not sure if she does it with exes but i think she might have someone i haven't listened to the podcast yet but nicole buyer has a podcast called why won't you date me where she goes through the question <laughs> of why she's perpetually single and i think she does talk to some exes and people she's hooked up with so There is a possibility for that woman to exist. It's rare, but it it does happen.
0: I would absolutely watch this series if it was Nicole Byer. That is a great idea. (laughs) Let's put that out in the universe and make that happen.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome.
3: (laughs) Just spin it off with Nailed It and then you're good. That's a new show coming out. We have one more bit of news, uh, which I don't know a lot about. Uh, What's the new David Simon series that's coming out?
0: It's about the most David Simon thing that you could even imagine and that you would never in a million years guess this and then you hear it and you think oh of course uh so uh, david simon is creating a series called a dry run that is based on the spanish civil war
3: <laughs> wow okay <laughs> I just,
0: first of all i can't wait immediately it's uh HBO teaming up with a Spanish company called media pro the series will be filled primarily by in it filmed primarily in English. It's going to be a six episode mini series. Um, Simon said it's going to, and this is coming from The Guardian, said it will discuss the failure of non-fascist countries to offer support to the Spanish Republic. I love this quote. We are interested in realism, Simon said, and we don't sell much in the way of redemption or happy endings. And, well, 1939 was no happy ending, nor was it redemptive. (laughs) Like, yep. (laughs) That sounds a lot like a David Simon show. So, um, I am really excited about that whenever that comes out. Well, that
1: David Simon show sounds like, like, it's a barrel of laughs. I'm really excited for that
0: it's gonna be a romp (laughs) yeah
1: laugh riot
0: so we are moving on now to our picks for the best episodes of the week and my god this was a great week for television there are things not included here that include the americans and legion and the terrific jesus christ superstar live there were a a wealth of riches from which to choose but i'm very excited about the four episodes we're going to be talking about dominic do you want to take us away with your pick
2: Yeah, I do. So in the sustained continuation of me working the Atlanta beat on this series, I'm going to talk about Teddy Perkins, which was uh, quite a 40 minutes of television in a season that's been increasingly rife with bottle episodes or at least some really interesting variants on that concept you had an episode where Darius goes to try and find a piano so it's very much a two-hander for Lakeith Stanfield and then Donald Glover who is wearing whiteface as a terrifying millionaire and one-time child piano prodigy named Teddy Perkins and Teddy Perkins proceeds to subject Darius to hell over the next thirty minutes, all while Paperboy is on the other side of Darius's phone, jokingly asking him if he's been murdered yet, which is fantastically funny up until the exact second where Darius very nearly gets murdered. I I have been all about Robin season. This isn't even the first time I've been on this podcast talking about Robin season, but. Donald Glover is doing some things with Atlanta that are going to be talked about for years. I genuinely believe that. And I think this is one of the most standout episodes in a season made out of almost exclusively standout episodes. Because it feels like he's playing with everything from some of the same tropes that popped up in Get Out. To something wholly singular and disturbing. And that also still feels somehow of a piece with the rest of the show. Like for a few episodes now, I found myself saying, you know, I really feel like he could do anything with this show. And I would just go along with it at this point. And I think this is like the exemplar of that.
0: Yeah, this is one of the most unsettling surprising, darkly funny episodes of television I've seen in a long time. Um, I just watched it this morning and thoroughly freaked myself out. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again when I will again thoroughly freak myself out. And it was a great showcase for Lakeith Stanfield, who is sort of somehow kind of undersung as a member of Atlanta's ensemble. Frankly, I think all the terrific actors on that show don't end up getting as much praise as they should because Donald Glover rightly soaks up so much of the attention as well he should as that creator as the head writer as the star and he is incredible in this episode too but uh, I just I was sort of floored not sort of floored I was definitely floored um I can't wait for Clinton Latoya to watch this one too so I can hear their thoughts on it but it was um, something else incredibly scary and rife with cultural references and not just the overt ones. We get mentions of, uh, Teddy Perkins is sort of an obvious stand in for Michael Jackson, as is another character that I won't mention because that's a hell of a spoiler. And you really should watch this episode knowing as little as you can. Uh, there are visual references, not just to get out, but to whatever happened to baby Jane, which I think is really, an a really interesting point of view. Um, It's just surprising and weird and thoughtful. There are these incredible Stevie Wonder musical cues that bookend the episode that do a lot of heavy lifting. I think it's a hell of an achievement, and I expect we'll be hearing about it for quite a while.
2: So just two more points on this before I let everyone else talk about their episodes of the week as well. But like, first of all, as far as cultural references, I love that this isn't even the first show I've seen in the past year to invoke the opening shot of The Shining. Because Mr. Robot already did it about six months ago. But um, I also thought it was kind of astounding just how good Donald Glover is in this episode as Teddy. Because it is just such a crawl under your skin performance. And it's also completely unlike anything else I've ever seen him do. It's
0: devastating. Well, Clint, what do you want to tell us about your episode of the week?
3: Well, first I'll give an honorable mention because it just somehow slipped my mind until you mentioned it. Uh, Legion, uh, season two premiere, came out last uh, this past week and it was uh, phenomenal. Uh, in fact, Allison and I both have pieces at Consequence of Sound on uh, just the way it, it's structured. And also I wrote about the way it uses dance and it's fantastic. But the real reason I'm here today and why I show up for TV Party every week is to talk about DC's Legends of Tomorrow and specifically this is an episode we've already talked about two or three times in anticipation uh, but now it's finally here we've seen it, it's incredible Uh, and and I'm talking of course about guest starring John Noble, an episode whose title alone uh, made us very, very intrigued several episodes back and the more we learn about it, the the more, the sillier things we hear about it, um, the more we're excited and again, we have it, we've already talked about last week about how the premises. of about uh, Gorilla Grodd attempting to kill Barack Obama and, quote, make America Grodd again. Um, But that's only the first 10, 15 minutes of the episode. And then, uh, because once you find out why the episode is called guest-starring John Noble, it's incredible. Because you already know the meta-joke about... Uh, John Noble voicing the big bad of the season, Mollus. Uh, they hatch a, a crazy plan, the the only kind of meta plan you could do on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, where in order to convince Nora Dark, uh, the woman who is going to sort of give birth to Mollus in his final form, in order to thwart his plans, Brandon Routh has to travel back to 2001 or whenever uh, and visit the real John Noble... And get him to read lines that they will then feed to Nora pretending it's Mollus because they because they have the same voice because Mollus is already voiced by John Noble. And just there's so many weird silly layers to that joke that I just I couldn't get over for the rest of the episode how, how amazed I was that they even went there.
1: Well do you want to point out how they know they have the same voice because that's pretty great too.
3: Oh, you know what? I'll leave it to you. You go ahead.
1: Mick has gotten on a big kick watching the Lord of the Rings films, to which uh, he watches on the the screen on the Wave Rider, and that's when they hear <laughs> Denethor, who sounds just like Mollus, as played by John <laughs> Noble. So, yes, he's not only does uh, Ray go back in time, he goes back in time to the son of Lord of the Rings.
3: Yes. Well the show is so steeped in pop culture like that. I mean, again, like I said, the movie the, the the episode begins with them saving Barack Obama and also Barack Obama giving Sarah advice on her cloned girlfriend, which is also great. Um but yeah, no just the idea that DC's Legends of Tomorrow give I, I hesitate to say they, they give so few fucks that they can do this, but they just they feel free enough to just immerse themselves in this pop culture meta narrative that they're just because the tone is so light that they can just get away with it and it doesn't sacrifice like the narrative integrity of the show.
0: I spent some time at C2E2 this weekend and as a result got to see a conversation between um, Dominic Purcell, Brandon Routh and Katie Lotz. And they, first of all, they're all astonishingly good looking. Second, I completely forgot that Dominic Purcell is b- British and he started talking in like a normal voice with a British accent instead of a gravelly voice with that American accent he does. And it was very jarring. Um, third, Kitty Lutz has pink hair now.
1: He finally used his real accent for once because back in the day, he would literally go and do press still doing his American accent.
0: <laughs> no way, really?
1: yeah. Wow. That's
0: hilarious.
1: It, and that was for the longest time I'm like what do you really sound like? Come on, let me know. <laughs> Tell me your secrets, Dominic.
0: <laughs> it was uh it's a it's a good voice. He mo- his answers were mostly one word intentionally because the person moderating the conversation made a joke about how his thing should always be one word responses. So then for the rest of the conversation she got almost exclusively one word responses. I've never watched somebody step in it so hard in that respect. It was like just Uh, Very funny. Um, Anyway, they talked a lot about how thrilling it is for them in the third season that the writers have really cut loose like this, that the first season they all had a good time. Um, but it was a little heavier the second season they started experimenting with this playful tone they all mentioned the George Lucas episode talked about some other things but that in this one that in this third season that they feel like they've found their footing and every time they get to read a script it's like finding little present after little present Katie Lotz specifically talked about how hard she left and how excited she was when she got when she saw she got, that she got the line the rest of us around Obamacare and like what a pleasure that was for her um, there was some reference to Bebo so the cast is having every bit as good a time making it as we are watching it which I think is really great.
3: I can't wait for them to continue that tone like because I totally agree I really think they found the right the right amount of silly like they've gotten right up to the line of how ridiculous they can make the show while also making it hold up as a show and one thing we've forgotten as well is that uh, this episode also features Damien Dark finally working with the team which is another interesting uh, dynamic Al- albeit one that's been done before in other shows like this but Neil McDonough is just having he's having enough of a blast that uh, I don't even care it's so much fun
1: I did appreciate I appreciated that uh Sarah like immediately as soon as dark comes up over to them she is going to kill him and it's like good job you, you should always want to kill him but I also think she should always want to go and find out that her sister is technically alive but that's a different conversation
3: <laughs> yeah that is something about uh, legends as being sort of divorced from the rest of the Arrowverse because they're just off hanging around in time and I guess you know you have trouble seeing for the forest for the trees and also it would just be it would just be too many questions it's best to just relax and uh not not worry about it i suppose
0: well apparently katie lots is coming back to arrow for the arrow season finale Uh, which as a person who writes about Arrow every week is something I'm very excited about because Arrow has been really off its game. So uh, (laughs) I feel like her coming back can only be a positive thing. Uh, I also, before we leave the Legends conversation, wanna just tip my hat to actor Lovell Adams Gray, who does one of the best, most subdued Barack Obama impressions I've ever seen. It's so low key, but it made me laugh really hard, particularly when he said, I sense that you have some grievances. And it was just like-
1: Yeah, I I love the Barack Obama impression. I was kind of disappointed because if this had been some old school Legends of Tomorrow, Sarah would have hooked up with Barack Obama. But right now (laughs) she's reeling over her clone girlfriend. So it wasn't going to happen. But I was like, damn it, this could have happened in an earlier episode.
3: I, I kind of think right now we still need to look at Barack Obama with rose-colored glasses. <laughs> Maybe that would have tainted <laughs> tainted his legacy a bit.
1: If Sarah Lincoln hooked at with Barack Obama, that would have just made me love Barack Obama even more.
0: <laughs> so, so. <laughs> totally. Uh, I mean, it's before Michelle. Totally makes sense. Um, I loved the moment when she said, we miss you before she hit him with the men and black slasher that they use. I was like, me too, girl, me too. Uh, I have a question for Dominic. Have we successfully convinced you that you need to be watching Legends of Tomorrow yet?
2: I have a backlog of television because you already convinced me to watch every episode of magician turned FBI agent solves crimes. But having said that, I'm going, it's on my watch list now. I'll say that at the very least. And that's more committal than (laughs) I'll ever probably be about any other superhero TV show, including the Netflix stuff, because having worked the Marvel beat for Consequences Sound since pretty much I was hired, I'm burnt out on superhero things. But everything you've shown me has been exactly as broadcast television silly as I want superhero TV to be.
3: Yeah. If it helps, just skip the first season. Just go straight to two and you'll be fine.
2: Oh, so like Parks and Recreation.
3: If Parks and Recreation had two boring hawk people in the first season.
0: Uh, The first season of Parks and Rec is significantly better than the first first season of Legends of Tomorrow. Let's put it that way. I am now going to pass this over to LaToya to talk about her pick, which is just one of the best sitcom episodes I've ever seen. I'm so excited to talk about this.
1: Um. Yes, uh, my pick is Brooklyn Nine-Nine's The Box. Basically, uh, it's Brooklyn Nine-Nine does Homicide Life on the Street. It took uh, five seasons for the show to do it. So, And it was worth the wait, I think, actually. because Totally. Yeah, we've had episodes before where they've done an interrogation. Uh, in my review, I say the episode is basically a sequel slash do-over of season one's 48 hours with uh, the episode with Kid Cudi. And it's just like it's a better version in every possible way. It has Jake Peralta being a competent cop, but then you know messing some things up because that's it's what happens when when Sterling K. Brown's around to be interrogated. It's just a phenomenal two-person, well, technically three-person episode uh, um, for like thirty minutes. And I was in awe the first time I watched it. I was both in awe while still being thoroughly amused. It. It hits all the proper buttons. It, it has it hits the comedy, it hits the drama, great acting. The uh, I would say all three cast members uh, in in the episode, including Sterling K. Brown as a guest actor, deserve Emmy nominations for this episode. Uh, just one more thing, I can't. They did a ref a callback to a bit from one of the worst episodes of the uh, of the season, "Return to Skyfire," with uh, the Adams family rap. That was a highlight of this episode. And to show it be Adam's family rapping go on.
3: Absolutely. I'm all in favor of just replacing all the dialogue in the rest of the season with Adam's family rapping. Um, But yeah, no, I totally agree. It's a fantastic episode. I love sort of formally experimental episodes of sitcom television. Like, this was just stripped down, like you said, a three-person like a three-hander. I love that it's a reference to Homicide Life on the Street because I think I mentioned this in a previous TV party or I've mentioned it to Allison before, but uh, at this point, Andre Brower has played Captain Holt longer than his character from Homicide Life on the Street, which is funny um considering you know the the obvious origins of the character but uh yeah no it's just great it's a wonderful way to see jake peralta and, and, and andre brower bounce off each other which is always one of the best parts of the show anyway but then also throwing them with uh, against such like a committed opponent in in sterling k brown it's yeah it's just a masterful work of sitcom storytelling
1: i also love that just the entire uh finish to the episode because it's based on this build-up where you have Jake who wants to just uh, to lie to the suspect, whereas you have Holt's, you know, smart cop, stupid cop play. And it's actually the combination of both of those things within reason that is what breaks uh, in Kate Brown's character. It, it, because they both are doing it to, it to the most extreme at first, obviously. Uh, Jake has to be aggressively stupid. And as I put it out in my review, actually, all the stupid things Holt tells him to do. I'm like, these are all things that Jake actually does do. But uh, <laughs> there's an air of subtlety to the point where he's like, oh, it's just like in the moment goofiness, as opposed to him being a real idiot. Because we know Jake Peralta is not a bad detective. He's a great detective. Uh, as I mentioned in that 48 Hours episode, the episode hinged on him being a terrible detective who literally only arrests Kid character because he calls him Joke Peralta, not because he actually has anything on him. Uh, so it just shows you, um, even though season one started off, it, it was it had promise. Obviously, the struggles that the show had at the time when it didn't really know what it wanted to be. Whereas here, this is the show at its most fully formed. They know the characters inside and out. They know how the characters would behave. It's even though it's the rest of the cast is around, and I, and I love the ensemble. It, it it was it was right to just make it Holt and uh, Peralta.
3: No, I totally agree. And uh, in independent of the. You know, microcosm of the episode itself. It is another great character moment for the both of them because essentially, smart cop, dumb cop, is their dynamic in the show in general. And it was interesting to see them recognize and perform those roles while also, um, you know, wondering how you know, testing the, their relationship in general. Because uh, this is another thing. This is a sitcom in its fifth season, and a lot of times when you have sitcoms with these big ensemble casts, that uh, at a certain point, their relationships become calcified and their character are amped up to an extreme. And so it a nice way to shake it up where Sterling K. Brown's greatest victory was being able to um, plant that seed of doubt in Jake about like whether or not, oh, well, we've come so far and established such a rapport, but does he actually think I'm the dumb cop? Um, and it was just a funny little moment like in, Im- in amongst this isolated otherwise episode to have that little bit of character moment um, that I really, really appreciated.
0: I had to step away briefly because my cat was dramatically puking in such a way that I couldn't ignore it. Um, She's okay now, no worries. Good to hear. Uh, Good to hear. But I can't wait to actually listen to what you all had to say about this episode. And I just want to... I posit the question. Do you think that it's even worth putting other guest actor in a comedy series nominees in this category for the Emmys or is he just going to clean it up? I mean, I suppose he could compete against himself. Yeah. For Saturday Night Live, yeah. Chadwick Boseman's SNL was pretty good this last week so there's you know he might he could go up against the Black Panther I guess but god he is so good and it's three men and Adina is one of my favorite hours of television ever so it was just like such a treat to experience
3: so Allison what is your pick of the week
0: Well, I guess continuing in the vein of me being super enthusiastic about shit today, I am low-level obsessed with the new BBC America series, Killing Eve. Um, It's written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who I believe is also functioning as the showrunner. Stars Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer, who is someone who's new to me. She was in, um, oh, I think it was maybe the White Queen. She was in one of those beautiful woman plays regal leader of yesteryear series that seemed to come and go so quickly. Um, but she was completely new to me. I'm a long time Sandra O fan. Also Fiona Shaw is playing a recurring role. Um, she's popping, she pops up here and there. She's, um, probably sadly best known as playing Mrs. Dursley in the Harry Potter films, but is like a storied British, uh, stage and film actress. Um, and it is the most twisted, funny, strange, feminist upsetting beautiful sexy tv show and it's very low-key um it's oddly matter of fact but is toying with these really strange ideas it does not have any chill when it comes to going for the weird shit like I don't know how to describe the tone better than to say it's a deeply intense very laid-back series where things like um sort of gently stabbing oneself in the leg because somebody got assassinated by having a vein nicked in their leg is just a casual thing that happens. But where somebody bringing his baby to work to have a conversation with that baby can be totally terrifying. I am enjoying it so much. There's been a lot of press about the show this week. There's a great interview in Vulture with Sandra Oh that I really recommend reading. Um, But it's it's not a series that's going to be for everyone, but it is so, for me, it is like just... Especially for me, it feels like. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I, I, if you are watching Killing Eve, I don't have anybody to talk to about it right now, so come find me because I am just I, I will find obsessed. you. I will Ugh, find you. It's good. It is just, it's so good. Um, I imagine I'll be talking about it a lot while it's on the air. And I'm a big Phoebe Waller-Bridge fan in general. If you haven't seen Fleabag, seek it out. It will wreck your life. It's so good. Uh, So yeah, it's, um, suffice it to say, I am enthused. And I think it is of a good quality. Uh, The premise, which I should probably address, as opposed to just glowing about it, is that there's this woman born in the UK, but raised in the United States, living again in the UK, but with an American accent. So if you're wondering if you're going to be hearing a Sandra O British accent, you won't. Is working for MI5... And gets tasked with essentially witness protection for this woman who saw her boyfriend, her much older boyfriend, assassinated, but nobody really caught who it was. There was just a woman who walked by him, kind of knocked into him. That was the only person, but they never saw anything happen. He just sort of fell over and died with blood gushing from his leg without any idea of when or how it happened. Um, She's put on this detail. She has this instinct that it must have been a female killer and starts doing kind of an illegal investigation of her own, which goes badly i won't say anything beyond that because it's sort of the story of the pilot which is called nice face which is the one that's my pick of the week um is what happens when she starts digging into this killing and how it affects her psyche and um why she finds it enjoyable which is fair to say she really enjoys doing this research like so many of us i'm guessing that eve is probably a true crime listener <laughs> Likes to Google serial killers at two o'clock in the morning. It's all very familiar to me. Um, the assassin in question that she's investigating is played by Jodie Comer, who is a very young woman um, who takes a lot of pleasure in her work, and it's everything else is probably best left vague. But it's uh, it is a real treat.
1: I do have a question. Uh, as a fan of Phoebe Waller Bridge, have you seen her her show, Crashing, which was the first show she created? I have not. You should see that. I think it might be on Hulu, but if not, uh, c- come see me. I- I'll hook you up.
0: <laughs> <Awesome>.
1: <laughs> uh, but yeah, I first became familiar with her work uh, on the British show The Cafe, where she was just she was kind of just like the the messy best friend, and uh, she was very fun there. And then I saw Crashing, which I wasn't sure how I felt about it at the time because it's it's again it's a very Phoebe Waller Bridge show, uh, but that one was about a bunch of twenty something millennials, if you will. So you can you can imagine how not for everyone that show was but then fleabag happened and she blew up and now now everyone's talking about her
3: now she's the sassy robot in the new star wars movie i'm excited to watch all of those shows that i didn't watch <laughs> <laughs> Right, there's just so much tv you guys but before we go on to our main event uh, we have a preliminary match, and that is the uh, our discussion of the, of the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend tour.
0: Yeah, I am going to leave most of this for this bonus episode we'll be releasing, which, spoiler alert, will feature interviews with both Vincent Rodriguez III, who Clint and I got to chat with in person. And he is very nice and very He's very funny, handsome. <laughs> extremely intelligent, and by the way, is just a total dish. Um, mm-hmm. Like he's got no pores. It was amazing. (laughs) Um, And also with Donalyn Champlin, who I spoke with briefly this morning about their experiences on this tour. I also got to go, which was incredible. Um, You'll hear about that in the bonus episode. If you can find a way to get tickets, which good luck. The Crazy Ex-Girlfriend live show is a hell of a thing. It features a bunch of members of the cast, all of whom sound amazing live. Uh, It was very funny, oddly moving at places, and just um, they really know how to put on a show. So look for that showing up somewhere in your iTunes feed or your Stitcher feed or whatever feed you use uh, sometime soon.
3: Now to the main event. This is the official inaugural installment of our new segment, Just Do This For Me. We teased it a little bit a few episodes back when Allison had me introduced me to the world of RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, but this is the first time we're really gonna dedicate a whole episode to it. Um, basically, what it is is you know we just here on TV Party we have a whole range of TV voices, each with their own tastes and interests, and some who are. Not yet initiated to those things, and so this is kind of our opportunity for one or more of us to impose our tastes on the other, and this time, we decided to break it in with that most hallowed of wrestling traditions, Wrestlemania 34.
1: Is that how it's pronounced?
3: Uh, I believe so. It's the, it's the original Latin.
1: I believe it's WrestleMania,
3: actually. It right? Oh, oh. Well, thank you for the correction, actually. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Allison and I, this is our first time watching a WrestleMania. I'd, seen rest- I'd watched wrestling with my dad growing up and stuff, but I was relatively still a neophyte to WrestleMania. And it had been a long, dry spell, too. So, it felt like I was reintroducing myself into this world. Allison, what was your experience?
0: None. I'd seen t shirts and I fl- like plenty of gifts now. And, um, some of the names have entered my orbit either because they like were selling me Slim Jims as a child or because they're now movie stars. So uh, obviously I knew who John Cena was. (laughs) I know who the rock (laughs) is. I know, um, there've been a number of wrestlers who've made appearances on arrow. And I know that Stephen Amell has also made appearances on, on the wrestling. Um, but it was all very new to me and, um, I was entertained as they say
3: <laughs> yes and so joining us we do have a couple of experts in the form of Latoya and Dom what What are your experiences how long have you guys been watching wrestling
1: I've been watching wrestling literally my entire life uh grew up watching it in the in the household with it was family time for the most part so yeah I've been just uh, nearly 30 years of watching wrestling then I guess
2: And I'm about the same actually, because back when I had my mom showing me not even WWF, and this was a pre-WCW time even, but she was showing me like the Von Erich family and the nwa like my mom, god bless leah suzanne who didn't understand what kind of monster she was creating at the time <laughs> because she would show me that and then by the time i was a kid it was the late 1990s which was the coolest time to be a kid and into wrestling and like a lot of it is hideous and gross now which maybe we'll come back to later but no i've been watching this consistently my whole life and i'm at like the level of fandom where i've like written for pro wrestling newsletters in my early days of freelance journalism. Like I, I, I've subjected more than one unwitting date to talk of how much I love this. Like the point is I probably like it too much.
1: I mean, as a kid watching wrestling in the nineties, I definitely got in trouble with my parents on a few occasions for them hearing me say suck it out loud, despite the fact, Hey, you were watching this with me too. So I don't know what you thought was going to happen. Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, I have sinus problems now because no one told me was wrestling was fake when I was a child. And I got super kicked in the face when I was eight years old. And that taught me really fast that wrestling is performed.
3: Yeah, that was (laughs) one of the most interesting things um, because uh, Allison and Dom and I all watched WrestleMania together. So Dom was there to be our guide, uh, our concierge, if you will. And it was kind of funny just listening to all the moves that you knew specifically because they had been done to you
2: yeah i mean you learn things you learn that like a proper lion tamer like the one with the knee in the back is one of the most painful things you can do to the human body and i've both put people in it and been subjected to it myself so this is informed expertise
1: my parents were at least uh <laughs> smart enough to tell us ahead of time that wrestling was fake well you know it, it's predetermined everything that way we were not really doing anything to each other hurt anything like we do like wrestling on the couch or something And my brother would, like, do a stunner, but, like, he'd be wearing knee pads specifically, so he didn't, like, break his knees on the wood floor. So, I never got super kicked in the face, thank God. But even if I had, I would have taken it properly, because I'm not uh, some rube.
2: Yeah, there's a serious lack of selling among eight-year-olds, I have to say. (laughs) Tell that to Nicholas.
0: So, this is eye-opening for me because I don't have any of these childhood experiences like Clint you're talking about things where I'm like no no one has ever put me in a a lion lion tamer the only equivalent I have is like if I said to you man I wish I could still do a double buffalo I'm like I feel like (laughs) that's like that's my equivalent right like I'd be talking about like tap dance moves that I attempted in my sneakers and aspired to but never quite got to
1: It's also crazy because WWE always says, don't try this at home, you know, kids. But then they'll be telling the backstory on commentaries, like, well, he's been wrestling since he was 13 years old. Like, uh, just saying, (laughs) maybe you shouldn't mention that.
2: To be fair, though, the don't try this at homes are a lot more, a lot less rather visceral than they used to be. Because I remember the ones when, because now it's like guys falling on their backs and falling to ringside and going, don't try this at home. When I was a kid, it was like Mick Foley taking chair shots straight to the dome and like guys with barbed wire embedded in them. And it was like, don't try this at home. And I'm like, why would I ever?
3: <laughs> yeah. Now that we've established sort of our, our respective baselines of experience, like Allison, what was what was your first reaction upon having completed WrestleMania.
0: Well, I was exhausted. Uh, I was warned in advance because Dominic and Latoya are good at their jobs, uh, that it was going to be really long and that I should pace myself. I was not prepared for the like sensory overload that was going to kick in. And I was able to bounce back from that a couple of times. I think partially because some of the matches were a little bit longer. I was able to detach and then sort of re-engage later. Um, but it was a lot. It was, when people say things are extra, I always think that's just a funny way of describing them. This was like extra, extra. I could not believe how much of everything there was. About the time that somebody pushed, the, whoever that was, pushed the parade float off the stage. It was like, that, well, this is kind of like drag, I guess. This is so much of everything.
3: The sheer quantity of it all sort of wears on you after a while, and I, th- I think it's why I don't normally engage in like watching a lot of sporting events, especially ones that like take a lot longer, just because I think I, for someone who is a, a a media critic, I I tend to have a very limited attention span when it comes to those things. Like I need to take breaks hour three hour four I could feel the wall hitting like in terms of the, the the sheer amount of like you said sensory overload that I could take and the novelty of the different matches and and the different storylines and whatever wasn't it, I was getting diminishing returns a little bit
0: that happened for me for the for the last one in particular but I do think that the show like you can tell that they know what they're doing because they did a good job of like, Oh, your attention might be flagging. So here's John Cena. Oh, your attention might be flagging. So here's a ten-year-old child. Oh, your attention might be flagging. So here is a guy accidentally punching his wife in the face. Like it was, they would find these sort of buzzworthy worthy moments to spike the show with in a pretty effectual way. But by the time we got to that last match, I was, that was dull as sin and I was just done.
3: Well, the impression I get, correct me if I'm wrong, wrestling experts, but uh, that last match is like now like infamously poorly received, right? Already oh, yeah. it's heading yeah. there.
1: I mean, there's uh-huh. a reason the crowd had chanted. This is awful at one point.
3: Yeah. <laughs> what were your guys' first reactions as experienced, uh, as a WrestleMania? How does it stack up?
1: It was on its way to arguably being the best WrestleMania of all time. And then things took a turn when it came to the three-way tag team match.
2: I would agree because it was pacing really strong for a while there. And if anything, and I'm sure we'll hit this point a few more times before this conversation's over, WrestleMania is too goddamn long now. And I'm saying that as someone who probably watches like a solid 10 to 15 hours of wrestling a week minimum on top of, like, all the other things that are happening culturally. But, like, WrestleMania is getting to an overwhelming length because I understand the value and not leaving everyone off the card, but 14 matches over 7.5 hours is bordering on preposterous. And, yeah, I think it was really great for a while, and then I think they really ran out of steam in the back half. Um, We'll get back to this later, but I think Styles and Nakamura didn't deliver on what it had promised to be, even as it was a pretty good wrestling match. The main event is going to be remembered as one of the worst WrestleMania mains in history, and I believe that firmly. And it's really funny to see Brock Lesnar, 14 years later, have another WrestleMania match with another all-time quote-unquote opponent where he just gets booed out of the damn building. And I think you're going to have to Occam's razor it sooner or later and realize all these Lesnar matches that didn't go over well are not going over poorly because... Of the outside stuff or the worry of whether Lesnar's gonna run back to the USC or whatever, it's because you're paying two to three million dollars a year to a guy who cannot be bothered to give a shit and then building your biggest show of the year around him. So I don't know. It was at once great and frustrating as a fan.
1: Yeah, regarding that main event, I- I'm not a, f- a fan of the Roman Reigns character for the most part at this point, but. I will say 100% it was not Roman's fault, any of the problem with the main event. I will say the problem was, uh, first of all, I wanted Roman to win just to get it over with to finally end the story. So the fact that they did not end the story, that's upsetting. But also you have him take six F5s and uh, kick out of them, and then he ends up bleeding too much for no reason. The, The fact that he doesn't win after that is absurd.
3: Yeah, we'll get into the F5s later for sure. That was a real point of contention for me. But uh, but I think before we dig too much into the matches themselves, maybe it's time for a short break. And then we can return and uh, attack these things in earnest. What do you say?
1: Let's attack after the break.
3: <laughs> Justice for Nicholas.
1: Well, I just, I just uh, went on the Wikipedia and I learned about Nicholas. And now the mystique's kind of gone now. Oh, no. Well, yeah, he's... He's John Cone, like the head referee's uh, son. Oh,
3: don't tell me that. Oh, (laughs) oh, guys, we just
0: had a moment like that one character in Deception where the
3: we just got decepted, you guys. He's
0: like my favorite uh, referee. Uh, So I like it. I I support
1: this.
3: It's fine. I was just so much happier knowing that it was like a random kid from the crowd.
0: Well, I think on that note, let's we'll nurse our wounds in this break and then come right back. That was a break, and now we are back. Clint and I are obviously like at the kids' table for this episode, which suits us greatly. Uh, before we hand things over to the grown-ups, and by the way, I should mention that. Dominic has a great piece in which he collaborated with a couple other people on Consequence of Sound.net right now about the greatest wrestling themes ranked. I'm sure he'll talk more about that. And also Latoya is legit writing a book about wrestling, which I hope she addresses at some point. So when we say they're the grown-ups like they actually know what they're talking about and we just giggled about Silly costumes and shit.
3: We're just sitting over here eating our chicken nuggets. I was
0: like, ooh, pink pants. That's amazing. I love those pink pants. And that was, oh, that, that wig is just great. And that was about the extent of my contribution. So so let's really quick all talk about a favorite match or something. Clint, do you have a, like a favorite sequence or match from WrestleMania 34?
3: Uh, there were quite a few I liked, but I think one I want to center in on is was the match between Alexa Bliss and uh, Nia Jax. Which, uh, again, I'm a complete neophyte, so I don't know about, like... I'm looking at the WrestleMania 34 Wikipedia page, and there's under the storylines tab. There's a friggin' novel. I I don't know any of that, but just in terms of the sheer spectacle of uh, of this women's match uh, with Nia Jax, just this amazing like, do it's settling this like mean girls storyline that they sort of do a previously on leading up to it. Um, it's such a great like physical match, and um, she's great. Her costume wasn't as as awesome as I would have liked, but uh, just the that sheer as they say, athleticism, take a drink whenever the announcers say that uh, of the match was was incredible. And Naya just has a great presence. And it was so satisfying seeing her smack down uh, Alexa Bliss.
0: I liked that one, too. Um, is there is there anything in particular we should know about that match? You guys grown ups.
1: I really loved how Nia was a a smart wrestler that she just beat the crap out of Mickey James before the match started because you knew that Mickey James was going to like try to interfere the entire time. So I I just, especially I love it when baby faces are smart because that can often not happen. And just the fact that Nia is like, I have to get rid of her first and then I'll get to you. The match was kind of everything I wanted it to be uh, out of Nia versus Alexa with Alexa getting too cocky when she would get like the upper hand for 2 seconds and then Nia just murking her every single time.
3: Honestly, like Alexa as the heel, like she was she was handling those those blows really nicely. Like I mean, I know about the pageantry and sort of the choreography that goes into it. I think the thing I said in WrestleMania, I, I could the the performance could be best summed up as why did I help you hurt me? And I think she she did that the best out of a lot of the performers there to, that that night.
1: Yeah, Alexa's really good about just like rag-dolling that way because she's so tiny so it's easier than her and also uh, a thing I recently tweeted about Alexa Bliss just in general as a character is that like her character becomes even better when you realize her entire performance is ripped off from 90s Jody Lynn O'Keefe of uh, she's all that uh, and whatever it takes fame then it's
0: just like <laughs> oh
1: wow
3: yeah, there's a real Regina George vibe to uh, to Alexa Bliss. Yeah, but I really enjoyed that. Allison, what about you? What's your match?
0: Oh uh, well, I liked a lot of the early ones. I had never seen a battle royal before. I thought both of those were really a hoot. And again, like I just the chance to see all of the costumes at once was a total delight for me, as a costume design nerd and a drag fan. So like I was really into some pink pants. I was delighted by the existence of the fashion police. That was a thing that just really tickled me. Um, And I really loved the cruiserweight match. In fact, I was going to say that my favorite was Charlotte Flair and Asuka. And I really thought that was amazing. But I think I have to be honest. There was something about watching Cedric Alexander and Mustafa Ali um, essentially like dance together. (laughs) That was so fun and strange and just a delight. Watching them kind of yell, like, show me the heart, show me the soul, was just wonderful. It looked like <laughs> two coworkers who were like, that's my best work wife. Um, figuring out how they were going to optimize their moment in the sun together. I don't know how these things are actually built, but I'm going to let that fantasy live on for me. You're basically right by what you're saying. I yelled kiss at the screen a lot during that one.
1: You're basically landed exactly what was happening with Mustafa Ali versus Cedric Alexander. So they did their jobs well. Um, the entire buildup to the match was um, Mustafa Ali had been cutting a lot of promos basically about how, you know, Cedric's his boy, but, like, Cedric expects to become champion, where and everyone just expects that because it's Cedric, whereas Mustafa had to, like, fight and grind, um, and how he was the heart of uh, 205 Live, the cruiserweight division, whereas Cedric was the soul, and they, they had these, like, moments and callbacks to the entire story, and the fact that you, uh, you again, a neophyte who knew nothing about the build-up, you could, you could get that, and you could also get that they need to kiss. That That's pretty perfect.
3: It's
2: efficient storytelling, is what it is. Yes. First of all, Allison, I know you won't, and I'm just, like, banging my head against a wall here, but if you enjoy guys just earnestly yelling heart and soul and then hitting each other really hard, you'd probably enjoy the hell out of New Japan. But anyway... If I can segue on, Allison, you already mentioned Charlotte and Asuka. That was my match of the night, and as I've gathered online, has been a lot of people's match of the night. And I was just blown away by that because we'll get back to this in a second, I'm sure. But, like, women's wrestling is a thing in WWE after being not a thing for a long time for a whole litany of weird and gross reasons. But the point is, there were a number of marquee matches built around female talent, and I would say that the best of them, at least from a pure wrestling standpoint, was the SmackDown Women's Championship match. Because you did a really good job of conveying that Asuka is a destroyer, but she's a, never been a destroyer in like the Goldberg way, where she just runs out, snorts steam, murks someone in 90 seconds or less. She's always just been a force that you can keep hitting and hitting and hitting and won't die. That's the whole idea. That was the idea of the streak, so to speak. And the conclusion of that streak has been kind of controversial, but it mostly works for me just by dint of the fact that A, WWE was going to be hamstrung from a narrative standpoint until it ended, and B, if you're going to give the streak to anybody, why not have it be the legacy star of the company who has emerged as one of the future women's stars,
3: I really enjoyed both women's matches, especially that one. And Asuka, I think, was one of the most fascinating personas of the night. But I think the thing I loved most about it, and maybe this is just the softy in me, it gave us the first example of, of I think, what you called aggressive respect, uh, where after the match, Asuka just, like presented the belt to her and they hugged and i was like oh that's nice they're gonna be friends now
1: i was so worried for charlotte at a certain point like when they like went to the outside and charlotte's laying on her back and you can see she's saying i can't breathe i can't breathe and i was so worried that she was injured and not going to be able to complete the match but luckily she was and uh i think it actually i think it was my favorite match of the night too I think the other match that I, I would say it would be up there just wrestling wise is uh Rollins versus Miz versus Balor but yeah I, I think Charlotte Flair versus Asuka yeah that should have been the main event of the, the, the whole damn show
3: I know Charlotte was ready for Asuka
1: he was and <laughs> hey at least it means that Asuka doesn't have to lose to Ronda Rousey although I did enjoy that go. match as well but it, it's better that she was loses, a good match yeah that was a fun match it's better she loses to someone who you know has been there and has been doing this work the work all these years As opposed to, you know, the new shiny toy. As good as Rhonda has shown herself to be in a limited amount of time.
3: I think a close second for my pick, though, would have been just Shane McMahon's little tiny baby punches. And his, like, weird aging body.
1: Do you know the thing about his, like, tiny baby punches?
3: Uh, Dom informed us on the night. And so we we knew to look out for it. And it was a delight throughout.
1: Because, like, when they connect, they actually, like, potato the heck out of the, the person he's hitting. Like, his his baby punches actually hurt people.
2: That's adorable. Yeah. That's kind of amazing because he has what I always thought were the worst-looking worked punches in all of wrestling.
1: They're legit, like, when they connect, they connect hard. I I heard that. I'm like, how? How is this possible? But yeah, his baby punches are ridiculous. Another weird thing about Shane that I recently learned, I think he might have been wearing uh, padding specifically because he was just diagnosed with uh, diverticulitis. So he probably should not have been wrestling, but he was. But also because Superman is secretly super jacked under his jersey. You would not expect that, but that's also true.
2: That actually, like, it's... I want to say that that surprises me, but then I think about what his dad looked like when he was, like, in his early 50s and juiced to the gills circa 1999. That might just be a family full of good genetics.
1: Yeah, I'm going to link you guys to, like, the picture of what's going on underneath that shirt because you will be
2: upset i don't like thinking about a buff mcmahon son i mean it was already great enough that allison immediately identified him as a large adult son which oh. like he is
3: this picture
0: no
2: <laughs>
3: i gotta see it. Right, yeah. right? <laughs> Oh my god. You could grate <laughs> cheese on that thing.
0: We're going to put we'll put this on our Facebook page so that you can see what we're talking about, but good luck. Which by the
3: way, yes, yeah, please follow us on on Facebook and Maybe. Twitter and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what a what a night. Now that we have our sort of initial bouts out of the way, we'll let the experts take the floor like talk to us about WrestleMania. How did it make you feel?
1: I mean, besides tired? I was already, <laughs> uh, I was already kind of hungover actually. So that was uh uh, I, was a very, I feel like it was even longer than all 25 hours that it was. <laughs> uh, but
3: was that an optimal or suboptimal way to watch WrestleMania?
1: Kind of suboptimal so because I just, I wanted to drink more, but I could not because I was just trying to stay hydrated the entire time. And I surprisingly did not fall asleep, although there were there were moments when I when I wanted to. My pr- thing about it being as long as it is, I'm also like a big supporter though of, I, because uh, if you work WrestleMania, you get like a big WrestleMania bonus. And for a lot of the lower card guys, that could be the most money they make all year. That could be like bigger than their typical salary, the bonuses. Um, so I, they do everything they can these days, especially to make sure everyone gets on the card. That's why you have the battle royals. That's why you have so many like uh, multi-person matches. And I think they did an adequate job. Even uh, Elias, uh, when he was just showing up with his guitar... That's how he. That's how he got his WrestleMania paycheck.
3: Oh, can we talk about John Cena for a sec? Of course. Uh, how amazing that setup was.
1: Oh yes, he's okay. just
3: there as a fan. Well, just I don't know, I don't know what it was. Every time they cut back to John Cena, I couldn't help but laugh just because I think
1: he was watching like he'd never seen wrestling before.
3: Yeah, he just looked like he was. His, it was a dad at his first WrestleMania, like when he's sitting straight up with like really good posture in that folding chair, and then a, f- a few matches in, you get that close up of the of the referee running over to him and whispering something mysterious in his ear, and he, his eyes perk up because his planet needs him, and he runs off full tilt. And it was incredible. And he
1: has trouble getting over the barricade, which is pretty funny, too. <laughs> yes. Like, where was he
3: going? And we didn't know forever. Like, I think there was a hot second where a couple matches had gone by. I'm like, did we fi- ever find out what happened to John Cena? And then it finally happened. And then there was that, that Elias fake out, which was the fascinating. Th- the
1: first time, the only time people boo Elias is because he was preventing Undertaker from showing <laughs> yeah. up. Because usually people right. are all about chanting "Walk with Elias" and everything, but this time they're like, "No, don't don't play with our hearts like this."
3: I was just waiting for Wonderwall. That's what I was waiting for. Uh, but yeah, g- guys, talk to me about that that huge match. Like, was that did that live up to the hype? Was the fake out did that work
2: or? So the setup of that match was really weird because so first of all, Undertaker is to the best of my recollection 53 years old. He is past the point where he should be working WrestleMania. In fact, last year's main event, which was him versus Roman Reigns, was a 30-minute demonstration in grueling detail of how unqualified Taker is to work a feature-length WrestleMania match at this point. It was
1: essentially Roman Reigns commits elder abuse. That was also because Undertaker was in no shape to move or wrestle. He was uh he hadn't gotten his hip surgery yet, right?
2: Yeah, it was. He got a hip replacement this past year, which should tell you everything you need to know about whether he should be in a ring again.
1: But oh, he, I he looked much better here than he did last year. So again, Roman Reigns gets screwed out of a good match.
2: Yeah, Roman one day is going to get to work a mania match with someone who can actually keep his pace, and it's going to be the best thing in the world. But yeah, I thought Cena and Undertaker was a lot of fun for what it was because they stuck it in the middle of the show. There was two and a half minutes a match proportionally to about 30 minutes of build-up and entrance. But at the end of the day, look, Taker's quasi-retired. He, I feel weird, if anything, that he came back as the dead man after the big dramatic like laying down of the hat and gloves in the ring at the end of last year's show. But... I thought it was entertaining. John Cena is very, very clearly in the autumn years of his WWE tenure, which I feel really weird about as a longtime fan, but he's getting there. And I think you can actually do some cool storytelling even after Undertaker goes back to hanging out in Texas where, like, Cena is, he's not only the wily veteran, he's not even that anymore. He's the veteran who's on his way out of the company. And I think there's cool stories to tell, like, um, Tanahashi-style stories to go back to New Japan again that you could do with him at this point. Uh, I just
3: want to see him in a horror film now, uh, just because his his fear reactions are next level, just chef kiss. Uh, Whenever he's standing in the middle of the ring and then, like, Poof! The hat appears in this on the ring, and uh, he's. They kept cutting back to him, just like looking around, eyes darting, and it was just phenomenal.
1: Remind me to find a clip of Cena reacting to a ghost child singing at him because he can show <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing that happened on an episode Absolutely. of Monday Night Raw.
3: What, what other what other matches did you uh, stood out to you guys?
2: So I'm gonna shout out the Ronda Rousey thing because. So look, I'm coming in here and I'll admit my bias up front. I have weird feelings about her being brought in part because I'm terrified of it being another Brock Lesnar situation where she figures out eventually that there's a lot more money in phoning it in and leveraging your name than there is in actually trying at wrestling because the main event was a demonstration of where Brock sat on that spectrum. But it was one of the most entertaining things it could have been. Because it leaned completely. So I kept making the joke, especially the drunker I got watching Mania, that it's not wrestling, it's sports entertainment. For those of you listening at home, that's Vince McMahon's preferred parlance for wrestling in the modern era. It, I was thoroughly sports entertained by all of that mixed tag team match.
1: That was my exact tweet. I was, <laughs> I was thoroughly <laughs> that's sports entertainment. That, those are the exact words I used.
2: Fantastic. And I swear that's not a theft. I just I was indeed because like, look, it wasn't a great wrestling match, but it's fine because of the four people in that ring, you had Triple H, who is basically retired and running NXT, which we'll get to. You had Stephanie McMahon, who, despite being a former women's champion, is not like a canonical wrestler. You had Ronda Rousey, who wrestled her first match at the biggest show of the year. And you had Kurt Angle, who looked like an exhaustive purple thumb by the end of 20 minutes. He was just a bag of blood waiting to burst. He, he did not look well.
1: <laughs> yeah, he looked better back in his painkiller days, which is very upsetting to say.
2: Accepting the fact that Kurt Angle was blown up beyond blown up and there was an entire segment of the match where it was a tagged a husband and wife tag team toying with Ronda Rousey because her tag team partner was very sleepy um wow. it worked phenomenally and i think a lot of that is that Ronda Rousey has, funnily enough, the Kurt Angle thing where she was a legitimate athlete. And there are certain things that translate from that that it would take years to teach a greenhorn wrestling student. And that's just the truth. Like the speed that she hits some of her transitions at is something that like some pro wrestlers never work out. And she, in every way, cut the presence of somebody who looks like a bona fide star in that medium which you do there is a long long history of outside the ring presences coming into wrestling and not being great at it and she's gonna rank up as one of the better right out of the gate i would argue
3: was this the match that had Rousey punching Triple H a bunch, uh, leading to Triple H's flailing limbs? Yes, it did. Yes, it was. It that was lovely.
1: That was a beautiful moment. I, I, I really, my, me and the family, we all screamed in, in joy and laughter seeing that, and just every time Stephanie would like plead for mercy, was all was also beautiful, so beautiful.
0: I got really into this one on the meta level, like thinking about the, the sort of calculation and mental gymnastics that goes into figuring out how someone who has a vested financial interest in the success of a given Piece of sports entertainment would also process like what they would want for themselves right so thinking about these executives deciding to get their asses handed to them um because it makes for good tv was really fun and trying to imagine the balance of like how badass do i want to look versus how entertaining will it be if i get my ass kicked and everything in between was really, really fun on a sort of meta level. Well, what's more
2: badass than couple motorcycles?
1: <laughs> exactly. And, and <laughs> going
2: really slowly.
1: With, with a girl gang in front of them. Yeah, that's actually become like the MO for Triple H and especially Stephanie's past few WrestleManias. Uh, because uh, back in the day, Triple H looking goofy at all in a, in a, on, at WrestleMania. That just was not going to happen. Sometimes to the, the intense detriment of the product. And sometimes in a way that congratulates a very racist storyline. As Dom mentioned, especially with Triple H, he, he runs NXT. So he's all about the future of the company and the future of sports entertainment and wrestling. So like he understands making someone else look good, basically, for the betterment of the company. Even if you have to make yourself look like a complete idiot getting, getting, getting destroyed by Ronda Rousey.
3: Totally, and uh, just to piggyback off Allison's point about considering those meta calculations of this being both like it has to hold up sort of as a narrative piece of entertainment, but also you you see transparently the business considerations. One thing that really struck me was. Uh, Having it be this big pay-per-view event that is also trying to sell upsell you on all these other things, like there was like that WWE Network, that huge promo for that, and like all the movies that are that The Rock is going to be in, and that kind of stuff. Um, So I thought that was really fascinating.
2: Well, yeah, WWE especially these days in particular is all about branding. Everything you saw on Sunday night, in addition to the feats of athleticism and all of that. You also saw a company that is, for one, a publicly-traded company, so that's A right there, and then B, a company that is really trying hard to graduate into the modern era, despite the fact that it is, above all things, a carny business built largely by guys with a carny mentality, who did a lot of messed up stuff in past years. And I I guess this is as good a time as any to bring this up. It's always weird, especially when you're someone who knows a certain level about wrestling, to enjoy WrestleMania because, Allison, to your exact point, you're kind of thinking about it from both the vantages of the show you're watching on screen and the one you know operating behind it. And for a dedicated wrestling fan, those things are kind of hand-in-hand a lot of the time when you're watching. And especially with Mania, you're kind of getting the... Eight-hour shotgun blast of what their what WWE is trying to sell you this year, which is an interesting exercise. And it's very to an end. It's very weird seeing things like the huge female presence on the show because, as cool as it is, because God knows, I remember the days of wrestling with like bra and panties matches and even grosser stuff than that still, and yet. It's weird to see WWE patting itself on the back for these things sometimes when it itself created a lot of the negative stereotypes that they're now branding against and more so when the Women's Battle Royal in the pre-show was going to be named after a now-deceased veterans women's wrestler from the early days of the wrestling industry in America who was also by numerous stories like A Terrifying Pimp and like a labor exploiter and all of this stuff and there are arguments to be made that like some of wwe's schedule borders on lab- labor exploitation as well so i guess the point is like you're seeing a lot of the pomp and circumstance but it's a very interesting show to also read from advantage of what are they trying to communicate and to work past
3: Totally, yeah, and those business considerations are really fascinating to uh to get a, a brief window in, even as my sort of my neophyte experience, um, Allison. I want to bring you in on something. Like you mentioned, one of the major appeals, sort of overlapping with your love of drag and the sort of the costumes and the pageantry, and especially like the music. Like, do you guys want to talk about that?
0: There there's so much good storytelling that can be done with costume design, and I think part of what made some of the matches that were. Um, particularly memorable or like where I was able to get in on the story right away. A lot that went into that was the costume design. The idea of the, the queen versus the Empress was really sold by the, let's call them ensembles that those women were wearing. Um, They were particular. I was particularly interested in what people were wearing in the battle royals because that was like all I had to go on. I was so overwhelmed. So in particular, I don't know who it is. Latoya and Dob are going to be able to tell me exactly who it is. Uh, But I just couldn't stop watching this dude in pink pants with white dots on them because they were so eye catching or the guy who ultimately won, who was just wearing like, normal pants, like not shorts and not really tight <laughs> pit, just like normal pants. Um it was so fascinating. And then when you add in this sort of uh creeping, growing LGBTQ thread that was happening where uh, Dom mentioned that maybe one of the women is the first out wrestler in D. Yes, Tony Deville, she is yeah and then there was somebody else who was had like a a pride moment in supporting Finn Balor. Yeah. Um very very interesting. I um yeah was compelled and I'm wondering if there are like secret messages hidden in the costuming that I don't know about because I was so interested.
3: Well the tailor always sews something into the fabric. Always so <laughs> <sews> secret messages.
0: <laughs> the secret
1: messages. Oh god. Uh, I also love that that you point out that Matt Hardy was just wearing pants and just like normal pants as he won the Battle Royal. Whereas his character is clearly insane and you did not address anything about that.
0: Yeah, they were just pants. That was. I think. I think that's actually what made him stand out so much. Besides winning, and then when Dominic told me exactly what was happening with like murder victim apparating from Dead Lake to life again, (laughs) and now they're gonna be a team. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I just love it. And the fact that he, it just, it was like he was going to a picnic, but he forgot his shirt and decided to stop by WrestleMania on the way. It was so funny.
1: It does. That seems pretty accurate, honestly. Who was wearing the? What was it? Did you say pink uh, tights with white dots?
0: She's
2: talking about Dolph Ziggler, and I find it really funny that he stood out, because in wrestling circles, Dolph Ziggler tends to not be a guy who stands out all that much to... He
1: stands out, but not in a good way. Yeah. Not in a good way these days.
0: Well, his pants stood out in a great way, because they were hot pink with white dots on them, so I couldn't stop watching him, which makes it really good costume design.
3: Absolutely. I think my maybe my favorite piece of costume design is just everything about Shinsuke. Yeah. Uh, that was <laughs> that was great. Even if the match ended up being a little bit of a wet fart, uh his costume and his entrance was awesome.
1: I love that entrance so much. I like I j I'm gonna
3: track down that theme.
1: It's it's a great theme. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he has on um, other big shows, he's had like the the live uh violinist play. Nothing ever this big. And I I, I, I approved of this. this. This is good stuff. And he was yeah, like I, at his most swag as they call him, during his entrance.
3: <laughs> I eagerly look forward to Nicholas's
2: walk on music. It's all right. Nicholas is going to come back in 10 years and it's going to be a triumph of modern storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> They're sowing the seeds now. So
0: do y'all want to talk about the, the overall weekend? Uh, because that's a total mystery to Clint and I.
2: Yeah, one of the reasons that Wrestlemania is such a big deal for a city to land, and it genuinely is, isn't Wrestlemania itself by any stretch. It brings down the entire North American economy of pro wrestling for a week, essentially, to wherever it's happening.
1: As well as the UK too, uh, because there were progress, I believe, and pro shows that were. Oh, yeah,
2: there. there were progress shows as well. So, yeah, you're getting this global presence, and even Ring of Honor did Super Card of Honor in conjunction with New Japan. So you had most of the major wrestling companies all over the globe today showing up in New Orleans running shows, and it's absolutely ridiculous because... WWE, don't get me wrong, has a hard, brutal schedule, and I don't want to undersell that, but there are indie wrestlers who worked five, six, seven matches during Mania Week. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Matt Riddle, who I love dearly, who is an ex-MMA fighter and smokes a lot of marijuana. And Riddle was working like five matches in a day at one point, I believe. And in general, it becomes this massive Essentially, for the wrestling culture, it becomes the, the epicenter of the universe for a week.
1: Especially someone like Matt Riddle. He was having to wrestle a lot of those shows like as the first match on the card because he had to like go on to the next show. Uh, it was an insane schedule. Uh, Will Ospreay, a, a British indie wrestler, he had injured himself in a match in Japan, like his neck and shoulder recently and and he still showed up to wrestlemania weekend to wrestle on the shows the crowds were very appreciative because they knew he was he was beaten up everyone's eyes are on you basically this weekend wrestling wise
2: absolutely because you've got everything from wrestlemania itself to nxt takeover the night before which i promise we will get to i'm not just going to keep saying it but you even have weird things like Joey Janela's Spring Break, which is something of a comedy wrestling event, but also has legit wrestling. There was um, LaToya, I don't know if you'll remember, but I know there was one show that was done blood sport style at some yeah, point. That where, like, there were, That
1: th- was hosted by Matt Riddle, actually. That was uh, Matt Riddle's Bloodsport. sport. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there was there was no ring and it was submissions and knockouts only, which is a really cool way to present wrestling. But but in general, I think like that entire week, like WrestleMania has become a bona fide cultural event, and WWE to its credit treats it as such and doesn't do things like they used to try years ago where they'd like freeze indie companies out of certain buildings. Mm-hmm. Which I think is one of the most interesting developments here, if anything. Which is WWE, if not like embracing the indie world, then certainly recognizing that like that's where the talent they're poaching is coming from, at least.
1: Like a lot of these and people, they're starting. Yeah, a lot of these people will be in their company sooner rather than later anyway, probably. Like they're probably going to see these people at WrestleMania because they're friends with the talent. It's like there's no reason to be exclusive when it's only helping everyone. And WWE is still going to be on top because billions of dollars.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, I think it's very telling down to the fact that on Raw last night, even, well, they called it TNA, it's Impact Now. They're acknowledging other companies and the existence of wrestling that's not them in a way that they never, ever used to. And yet, New Japan is the one thing that still doesn't exist because they can say whatever they want. I think it's the one thing they might be apprehensive about when Bullet Club shirts are everywhere and they're slowly easing into the U.S. market.
1: Yeah, that's why they always talk about how AJ and Nakamura and Bauer, they wrestled in Japan. They all knew each other in Japan, but they never say New Japan specifically. It's it's very rare. Like, JBL used to say it sometimes. Moro used to say it on commentary sometimes, but, like, they, they're, they're not going to go out of their way to say oh new japan where they all came from
2: if we're kind of having the discussion left to the two of us right now i think it'd be interesting to see where do you stand on what wrestlemania and mania week at large kind of said about like let's take it as a state of 2018 wrestling what were some takeaways you had there
1: wrestlemania week you know, wrestling always seems like the biggest thing in the entire world you would never know uh outside of that that it's that it's not that it's still technically niche when you're having like hundreds of thousands of people coming into the city basically for all of this it's fascinating to me that it's still considered. you know it's not so mainstream even though like like, by all accounts this is a huge thing it's like everyone who wasn't watching mania on sunday night was saying wow i just learned all my friends watch wrestling and love it." it it's it's such a weird uh uh, culture shock in a way, I guess when it comes to Wrestlemania week no, it's still relevant, it's still they're still telling great stories, they're, they're telling much better stories, I think we're gonna get a women's Wrestlemania main event uh, sooner rather than later at, the, at this point too we got had four matches at Wrestlemania with women, two singles women matches, that's unheard of The was it not, the, the last female uh, title defense one-on-one was the, it was over a decade ago, wasn't it? Was it Trish versus Mickey, or am I completely wrong?
2: I believe it was Trish against Mickey, yeah, as far as title matches go anyway. And that was WrestleMania 22, the last time it was in Chicago, for audience perspective. I do think there's an interesting thing happening, because there's already been rumors starting the mill that there's interest in having Ronda and Charlotte headline next year's show, which for one, yes, absolutely, and for another... I think you're finally starting to see WWE realize that there's, again, a lot more value in letting in the whole equation of wrestling rather than the old method, which was Vince kind of union busting, Mm -hmm. signing anyone who was a draw anywhere else that could ever be a threat to him, and just tearing the industry down to maintain a monopoly at large.
1: The thing that sucks to me, in case we do get Rousey versus Charlotte for the main event next year, is like, I, I'm just kind of bummed that the rest, the first women's WrestleMania main event couldn't be uh, the WB's Four Horsewomen. It couldn't be Sasha versus Becky versus Bayley versus Charlotte. Because I think that could draw for main event of WrestleMania. Or it could have before they, whatever they've done with Bayley and, and Becky.
2: No, and don't get me wrong. I'd love that too. But at the end of the day, I... Vince McMahon loves nothing more than getting onto news outlets and ESPN for a few minutes. That's been provable for years now. And I think on that basis, he's going to go for the thing that's the biggest draw, which whatever you feel about Ronda, she's going, especially if Lesnar ends up back in UFC as has been the rumor for quite a while now. She's going to be one of the draws, especially if this now that she's under a full-time contract. They've, in, they've gone all in on her, essentially, so she's going to have to be the thing, like it or not. But I also think it's really interesting, especially this year, to just completely leave Clinton Allison behind for a second. Sorry. But to also talk about TakeOver New Orleans, Triple H's NXT show the night before, which if WrestleMania is kind of the exemplar of what the industry is right now, you can also sort of take TakeOver as the exemplar of what it's going to be eventually. Because I especially think once you see him and Stephanie really start running the show, you're going to see more and more of the TakeOver feel, the NXT feel, the big fight feel, presenting it as exaggerated reality reality. I mean, there's always going to be a certain level of Vince McMahon cartooniness, and I think there should be. Like, there should be 15 minutes on WrestleMania where Braun Strowman and a 10-year-old child win the Raw Tag Team Championships. But I think that realism as far as treating wrestling as, okay, this is scripted fighting, but it's also a serious artistic medium, I think arguably that's your way forward, right?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the thing that's that's been constant for oh too long at this point is that no matter what the WWE pay-per-view is the next day, the TakeOver always seems to not only exceed expectations, but do better than the main roster pay-per-view. Um, as much as I enjoyed so much of WrestleMania, I, I would say that again uh, for TakeOver, just because between Gargano and Ciampa's unsanctioned match, and the the six way ladder match, it was ah, it was chef's kiss basically in, in wrestling form. It was it was just beautiful storytelling, just beautiful wrestling. Uh, I I wish you guys could have seen it actually. I know you obviously WrestleMania was a, a huge undertaking, but I, I wish you guys could have seen Takeover the night before, which was a reasonable amount of time it was not as long as wrestlemania
3: it was the amuse-bouche to the uh, to the full meal of wrestlemania is what you're saying absolutely yeah,
2: but wherein the amuse-bouche is like some of the best food you've ever eaten, and then WrestleMania <laughs> is having KFC shoved down oh my your throat God. forcibly.
3: <laughs> I'll take it. Just to steer back to the actual event, though, um, maybe this is a good time for you to ask us questions. Like, Is there anything you're curious about, Allison and I, sort of taking away from the event?
2: I'm going to ask a very broad question, and I promise there's a reason for it that I'll flesh out, but... Was there anything as just a casual fan coming in that left you ill at ease at all? For me, I guess,
3: because I can see your guys' point about the WWE sort of changing with the times and everything, and especially trying to shuffle off those sort of pernicious stereotypes. But uh, I still was a little bit disquieted at uh, WWE's continued use of dwarves with uh, and little people with uh, such disdain.
1: It's weird because it was also it had to do with New Day's pancake thing, and then that's a whole other thing you yeah. have to explain, and and how. Right.
3: I mean, I was a fan of the trombone playing the Dragon Zord yes. call, but uh, that's just me. To,
1: to explain New Day's entire thing. Uh, I there's also someone recently who called New Day's pancake thing racist, which I didn't know that pancakes and black people were a stereotype. But the reason they even started with uh, pancakes in the first place is because. They were literally in a lumberjack match once, and they dressed up like lumberjacks and brought pancakes. So it's become their thing recently, and it, all, it culminated in the, the the short stacks, which is what, what, what we had uh, at WrestleMania. Little people in WWE isn't really a thing, at least not as a joke. Uh, they they there were two full time members of the roster the past few years who like finally were released. Dom, you you would agree with me. Um, Hornswoggle was never good.
2: I think you mean Hornswoggle, the last cruiserweight champion before it came <laughs> back. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I like to think of Hornswoggle as the new Leprechaun. God damn it!
1: El Torito was great, and they unfortunately never g- gave him the respect he deserved, basically as a wrestler because like, they don't have like a minis division like they do in Mexico, or that's actually a thing and it is respected. I don't know if that will ever be a thing in WWE. They'll accept. To the point where, like, they'll have their own minis division and it will be taken seriously. But I just don't think they're going to really touch that again.
2: Yeah, there wouldn't... I mean, they don't even know how to handle cruiserweight wrestling, so the idea of treating minis wrestling with reverence would be unlikely. But the reason I bring this point up more than anything is that, especially to casual fans, I've always, like, wondered, and to an end been insecure, admittedly, about how wrestling comes off to people because... For as big as it was in the late 90s, if you go back and watch some of those Raws now, some of the subject matter is absolutely repugnant. And some of that is just late 90s, bitter alt-rock culture. Some of that is it being run by a billionaire who lives out of touch with all reality outside of wrestling reality, imparting what he thinks is funny to the people through the medium of wrestling. And there's been everything from gross minis wrestling to I've already alluded to the rank misogyny of the company at over the years. There's been a whole lot of things. But at the same time, I feel like this is a WrestleMania that I could show to someone and be minimally embarrassed at best. And the fact that I showed it to two someone's on this podcast and was minimally embarrassed at best was kind of an affirming thing.
3: Do you think part of that maybe is there's also a class element to it, too? Because uh, WrestleMania and wrestling in general tends to be sort of stereotyped as this uh, thing held up by people who are a, a more working class. And uh, do you think there's sort of a question of uh, respectability, whether earned or not, that, that sort of crops up when wanting to introduce this to it's somebody?
1: stereotyped as that, but I think, Dom, would you know, wasn't it recently revealed like that... The actual audience tends to be middle class, possibly upper middle class. I think that was something that was recently revealed.
2: Yeah, I can't remember the exact thing, but I do believe you're correct that like... It's not
1: actually the lower class that people assume it is.
2: Yeah, it's not. People assume, and I I don't mean to be derogatory here, I don't know how to find another way in, people assume it's the NASCAR demographic, right? it's not. Like, however you might parse that out, and it's really not. Because at this point, to be into something that is known, so it's not like the 80s anymore, it's known to be pantomimed violence. So to appreciate that, you have to have a little bit of ironic detachment that you tend to see a lot more in like a more open-minded, art-literate audience to an end. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it is also, I think as a storytelling medium, though... I think it very much just appeals to the lizard brain in a lot of respects because on one level, you're cheering for people getting hit for fake and sometimes for real, especially in that last match. You guys got to both bear witness to the noble wrestling tradition of a hard way opening.
0: Yeah, that was, I agree with Clint's point about what was unsettling to me. Um, There were little things here and there that rankled um, I probably would have been less put off by the um, Styles Nakamura match if, Cl- if Dominic had not described AJ Styles to me as being wrestling Jesus beforehand, because <laughs> that just maybe gave me a little squick, but um, I was really turned off by the blood sport at the end is what it felt like, and I was uncomfortable feeling like I was watching something that was supposed mm-hmm. to be stage combat that did not seem like stage combat. Some of these matches, it seemed like the participants were better at sort of hiding the stage aspect of it. Some of them, you could see that certain things were rehearsed, and I actually really enjoyed that element of it and sort of taking this background that I have in stage combat and seeing it in a completely different context but identifying it as being the same thing. The hair pulls, particularly, you could really clock the hair pulls that were staged, Um Or at least I could. But at the end, and before the blood even, I just, it felt brutal in a way that wasn't entertaining, Mm -hmm. that did not look safe, and that, like, it was like forced disengagement. I just couldn't Mm -hmm. anymore. And then once the blood started pouring down his face, then I was just wondering what the fuck was going on and why they weren't stopping it? Mm -hmm. Because it seemed so unsafe to me.
1: Dom just stepped away, didn't he? Because he said that it was a hard way um, opening of the blood with, from the elbows, but I was pretty sure that Roman had bladed too deeply because blading is, um, I think, in professional wrestling. I don't know if he told you about that, where uh, the wrestler will cut themselves basically at the edge of their hairline and that will bring blood. They've basically gotten rid of that, uh, especially in WWE, but there have been numerous main events where that has happened in WrestleMania, usually because the blood can be like one of those things where it's so visceral. It's one of those things that's good for a story. And I was just of the belief that Roman, he accidentally cut himself too deeply, basically. It's one of those things where they keep saying, oh, we're, we're not blading anymore. But at certain times, you can see what would actually happen. That literally happened, I believe, in the last Roman-Brock uh, main event mm-hmm. in WrestleMania.
0: So he did tell us about blading. He also said that he thought that perhaps when something obviously went wrong, whether he bladed too deep or something else happened, that perhaps the referees called an audible Mm -hmm. and that maybe the story changed at the last minute because of what was going on on stage. Mm -hmm. Is that something that occurred to you as well?
1: Yeah. So I believe, yeah, he was supposed to blade. He was not supposed to blade that deeply. Um, I'm seeing, I've been seeing some things saying that basically the only people who knew what the actual finish to the match was, was Vince Brock and Roman, so legitimately, the referee had no idea what was going on. So that could be also why it seemed like it was a rushed ending, where like that actually was the finish. But again, as I was saying before, it's just a terrible story in general, whether it was a hard way or blading, or or just a mistake. Because again, going through all those F fives, and then oh my god, that was
3: excruciating. Yeah, and then
1: bleeding profusely. Once he starts bleeding profusely, like you would think, the story is okay. He has to overcome somehow. But then from just lose like that, then there was no point for any blood whatsoever.
3: Yeah, it was real squeaky. I I, I was real put off by that too.
2: So I'm going to make a point real quick about bloodletting wrestling, if I may. Just It always makes me feel gross and backwards to say that I'm not entirely opposed to it out of hand, but I'm not because I grew up watching Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair do blood sport in cages in the American South. Mm-hmm. So like... I think there can be an effective, dramatic component to emerge from that. But I also feel like there has to be, especially in the modern day and age, a damn good reason for breaking out. And Latoya, to your point, I don't think there was a purpose to it here at all, except to try and win a crowd back that had already been long lost. But it was the,
1: the audience was essentially calling out how stupidly booked the match was in general and doing that was just added fuel to the fire for how stupid it was. And I, I too agree, like, blading, I, I like that it's not commonplace anymore because you, you even probably remember that era in 2002, 2003, especially with Triple H and uh, Shawn Michaels where there'd be all of their pay-per-views nowadays if you have to, like, watch the clips on YouTube, if they put them on WWE. uh, It's basically, it all has to be in black and white because they would just start bleeding for... No reason, really, even though this this was a blood feud, but like it was got to a point where it was it was every pay-per-view they would be on. They would be bleeding profusely. And
2: yeah, it was violently overdone. I mean, I remember Judgment Day 04, Eddie Guerrero and JBL and Eddie Guerrero looking like he had been fucking murdered in the ring by the end of 20 minutes. Like, so going back to that whole point of like wrestling, you're embarrassed to show people that was very much that. But, like, it was weird that of all the modern times you're going to choose to bring it back, it's going to be for a title retention.
1: Like, the last time that Roman, they even had Roman uh, do any blood, that was, I believe, the beatdown with Triple H, and that was, that was a blood packet. Like, they literally used a blood packet. But here, again, you're going to have him, because you said you thought it was Hardway. I thought it was just a blading job done poorly, accidentally too deep by Roman.
2: I only said hard way because it, when they re showed it at the end when he was ground and pound punching Roman, it really looked like he was giving him the knuckle, but I wasn't sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. It just seems like he cut too deep to me because you you can cut, you could have on Raw you could see where the stitches were, and it seems like it was just it was a blade cut. Um, but yeah, but to do that it, again, it's just poorly. Poor story. He, he bleeds immediately, and then the match ends, basically. What was the point of that? All that blood?
2: Quite literally nothing. And I actually, if we're talking about things we're reluctant about, I, I feel like that's a good segue into discussing the greatest Royal Rumble coming up later this month in Saudi Arabia, and I bring this up in context of WrestleMania mostly because several of the WrestleMania matches seem to conclude on more of an ellipsis as opposed to wh- how I described the show to Allison and Clint up front, which was as sort of the season finale of the past year of WWE storytelling.
1: Yeah, and it looks like this uh, Saudi Arabia rum- Rumble show will be the conclusion because it looks like this is where Roman will actually win the title. So we really just wasted our time for nothing.
3: So then as opposed to like a normal season of television, this being the season finale, it's more like a season of game of Thrones where the second to last episode is WrestleMania. And then the rest is the wrap up
2: normally. No, but this year, maybe
1: it's weird because you also have um, after WrestleMania Monday and Tuesday, they have the raw and the SmackDown after WrestleMania. And it's also where they like debut new wrestlers who are like from NXT or either coming back to the company um people make returns from injuries. So that's going on too. So you would think, okay, season premiere we're starting this all over again. But then again, you still have that at the end of the month, you have this the Saudi Arabia show, which is probably well, the, the conspiracy theory, which is probably correct, honestly. Is it is the show where Roman will beat Brock because it's the one show where Roman won't be booed out of the building. And that's it's kind of amusing. But also, again, why did we have to watch the terrible, terrible match at WrestleMania?
3: I'm mostly just delighted that there's someone who looks exactly like Jason Momoa's Aquaman in the WWE. I mean Yeah. I mean the
1: Usos also <laughs> well, look like smaller versions of that too.
3: Oh yeah. Well, I mean I feel like on a relative scale, everyone's smaller than Jason Momoa. <laughs> this is true.
1: But also one of my uh, favorite things about Braun is that I I just want him to run into the Usos at all times because he would just assume that it's Roman and then try to beat them both up. And they're like, we're not Roman, but to him, (laughs) they are Roman. They're all Roman.
3: We're getting, we're running kind of long. So I wonder if there's like any final thoughts we have on WrestleMania and especially like this experiment we've done where uh, Allison and I have sort of sampled it for the first time.
1: Uh, I just want to ask you guys based on WrestleMania alone, which guy wrestler and which girl wrestler would you say are your favorite?
3: Ooh, good question. Uh, I think Asuka is probably my favorite female wrestler, uh for sure just cuz that look. And and Shinsuke, I think I just I'll just have to go with them. They're just they have the they have the boldest styles and the best intros and yeah, I, I think on a sheer pageantry level, I would watch them have their own weekly cop show
0: definitely asuka for me for the dudes it's a like a little tighter i just like i cannot say enough how much i enjoyed that cruiserweight championship um like i just like i think maybe i just need to kind of lump them together and say cedric alexander and mustafa ali Um, i mean
1: together if they were put together they'd be like the perfect wrestler
0: it, they were it was just such a damn delight. They, they were so fun. But I also had a really good time watching John Cena, not so much as a wrestler, but as a person who knows like what's in his toolbox and has figured out how to best deploy it. Um, which is something like that you see in acting. Some of the people who are the most entertaining people on earth are not actually great actors, but they figure out, they figured out exactly what their shtick is and exactly how to use it. And that is amazing. Um, and I think he's kind of one of those people. Um, but honestly, no, I would have to, I would have to say Cedric Alexander and Mustafa Ali, but I love Nakamura a lot too.
3: Yeah. Well, actually, can I go back and change my answer to Nicholas? Nicholas all the
0: time, always. You guys and your Nicholas, former, <laughs>
2: former tag team champion Nicholas. Oh, did he lose? How did how did Raw go for him? They had to renounce the titles, right, Latoya? Yes, because
1: Nicholas has the fourth grade. Uh, but once he. <laughs> He's yeah, homework. He, uh, once he graduates high school, uh, WB better get ready to, to get these hands.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I honestly just, I'm really disappointed that that announcement was then followed by the announcement of a tag team tournament. And not the announcement that Braun Strowman will be defending the tag titles Freebird style with a stranger from the audience
1: each I week. I wish Braun Strowman would, be would like be great. adopt a child every week. Like he, I, as I was saying Sunday, like Nicholas is his child now. Sorry to Nicholas's parents. <laughs> but he, yeah. he, loves, he
2: loves LeBron now. Sorry, referee John Cohn. Your son has been subsumed.
3: Yeah, the reveal. I just want Braun Strowman to build an orphanage.
0: Oh God, that'd be so good. So any last questions or thoughts for us either or for each other or that you want to share in general before we go on to our picks for next week?
2: I just wanted to thank the two of you for allowing me to subject you to this.
0: <laughs> oh, it was a yeah, blast. Good job, guys. Clint, here's my question for you before I hand it back to the Grown Ups one more time. Do you, do you sure. think you'll watch again?
3: I may not go into the week to week but I absolutely would be on board for WrestleMania being an annual thing.
0: Think- yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm not sure I could do it week to week. I may occasionally drop in because I had a much, I had a lot more fun than I expected. Um, but I imagine that WrestleMania will now be an annual statement. Yeah, like I just add a yeah. Drag Race. I don't
3: have the, the, the time or the emotional capacity to add another thing. You
0: guys
1: should definitely check out an NXT takeover at some point. Uh, I'm sure Don Don will convince you. And also, Allison, you should check out because um, so Cedric versus Mustafa is actually technically a rematch. You should see their their first match that they had against each other, which I would say is
0: even better. will I get to scream "kiss" at the screen some more. Oh, oh, definitely. Awesome. Okay, I'm super into that. I'll I'll, I'll show you where where to find it. Excellent. Let's move on to our picks of the week for next week. Again, a totally loaded week for TV. April is just coming in strong with the televisual shit. Dominic, what are you most excited about? And technically this is this week because obviously this episode is coming to you a little bit late. So what is your pick for next week, which is actually this week?
2: Yeah, so it's still the future as we record this. I don't know. We're on a Days of Future Past timeline now. But anyway, I'm super stoked for the premiere of Chef's Table Pastry on Netflix so for the uninitiated chef's table is a netflix series about some of the biggest lunatics you've ever witnessed in your life making really really beautiful food and it's very highbrow and it's very ornate it's definitely not accessible in the way that like top chef is or something like that but i love watching people who are obsessed with the minutia of food reach the peak of their craft and I can't wait to see how that's applied to pastry cooking, which even by chef standards is one of the hardest things to do. So I'm just very on board with this all around. As a
3: MasterChef Junior fan, I'm very excited to see that Christina Tozzi is joining the the roster this season.
0: Um, Clint, what is your pick for the episode of the week?
3: Well, uh, this week is a great week for turbo space nerds like me. Uh, there's going to be two new shows, one on Netflix and one on Sci-Fi that are... Uh, Either premiering or airing new seasons. Uh first is the Expanse, season three. I've waxed rhapsodic about the the Expanse for quite a while, and uh the third season's finally back. It's just still going really strong, it's finding its footing, it's uh wonderfully layered show with a lot of good production values especially for sci-fi but the real one that I'm actually really pleasantly surprised by is the Netflix reboot of Lost in Space which is coming out this Friday. It's a little more Martian-y in that um, it's a long form sort of survival series where they have to literally science the shit out of some stuff and I actually um, wrote a piece for Consequence of Sound that is up by now about uh, how they've updated the family and specifically like the, the female characters like the mom and the two daughters to become much more Assertive, resourceful, like they're definitely the brains of the family. And so that, along with a bunch of other great pieces of media in 2018. Uh, It's been a really good year for representation of women, and especially women of color, in STEM fields. So, like, on that level alone, there's a lot of charms to be found there, but I think the real superstar of Lost in Space is Parker Posey as Dr. Smith. Like, she's everything I wanted her to be. She's cagey, she's shifty, she's Machiavellian. She puts in a fantastic performance, uh, pitting everyone against each other, and, uh, yeah, its ambitions are, are greater than I expected, and, yeah, there are a few hiccups. It's not a perfect show by any means but it looks good it, it breezes past for 10 episodes so like i, I eagerly uh, ask you to check it out
0: awesome latoya what about you
1: well my pick is uh basically for tonight uh it is the challenge uh, season finale slash reunion show challenge is apparently on year round now <laughs> so i never get a break from my my reality show the, the closest thing i have to a guilty pr- pleasure i guess i would say this should be America's uh, national pastime, the challenge. And even though I've been spoiled on who wins, I'm actually happy about that. So I'm very excited to see how these drunken idiots yell at each other during a reunion because, ah. They're, they're such drunken idiots, but they're my drunken
0: idiot. Amazingly, this is the second episode in a row in which somebody has been super hyped about the challenge, which I didn't realize was l- what Real World Road Rules challenge is now. Like, I had yes. no idea that it was still on or still existed. And so you and Randall should get, you and Randall Colbert should find each other on the internet and gush about the challenge together because he is also super on board.
3: I am certainly curious about this Johnny Bananas character. Oh,
1: God.
0: That's a different. That's a whole other episode. (laughs) If you, I new
3: hall of faces recipient.
1: I will come Uh, back to talk to the challenge with you guys.
0: We will have to make it happen. My pick is also a reality, like a soapy pulpy reality TV America's pastime situation. Um, I want to say upfront that the episode of the Americans that's airing next week is excellent. The episode of, or this week rather, that aired this week is excellent. The episode of Legion that's airing this week is excellent. There is so much great TV out there, but I would be lying if I said that my choice was anything but RuPaul's Drag Race. The episode this week is called The Last Ball on Earth. And the challenge is that the queens have to come up with global warming-inspired ball looks because the world is ending and it will be the last drag ball that ever existed. Amazing. (laughs) Uh, It is delicious. I cannot wait. Uh, It is As always is the case with Drag Race, it is possible that for whatever reason, the queens will just fall kind of flat. I'm really hoping that's not the case. The ball episodes tend to be super excellent. And um, I am especially excited about... The guest judges, Tisha Campbell-Martin, who is amazing, and Logan Browning, who was so good on the first season of Dear White People on Netflix. And I think that at the very least, they're both going to look fabulous, but I would guess that they'll probably both be excellent guest judges.
1: Well, I can't believe I didn't suggest this to you sooner, considering you kept making the drag comparison to wrestling. But there is a YouTube series called uh, The Nobody's Watching Wrestling, which is drag queens reviewing
0: wrestling. Oh, God. Okay, No kidding. I'm on that. That's I found out this weekend that there is a Chicago based drag queens play D&D group, which I already thought was (gasps) the most me thing that ever existed. But apparently there's a lot of like drag involved in other people's interests that I'm unaware of. So I'm going to have to seek that out. You'll love it
3: now that we know what uh, what to watch next week uh, it's time for us to sign off and step out of the ring
0: find us on Twitter at TV Party COS and on Facebook please come like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash TV Party Podcast TV Party Pod now I gotta make sure TV Party Pod <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Allison Hsu and in the podcast Debating Doctor Who Podlander Drunkcast and Outlander Podcast and occasionally some other places
3: you can find me on Twitter at Hollywood and on Two other podcasts, Alka Hollywood and Nathan Rabin's Happy Cast.
1: You can find me uh, at LaFergs at Twitter, um, and my podcast, The Televoid, at at The Televoid on Twitter. And then you can just find me around. You know,
0: I'm chilling, writing a book about wrestling, about women's wrestling yeah. specifically. So, oh, that's amazing. Yep.
2: Nice. And me, you can find everywhere on Consequences Sound at this point. <laughs> my podcast filmography on the Consequence Podcast Network is currently between series. But we just wrapped our first run on the films of Wes Anderson, so please check that out. We'll have a June topic out to the public soon enough. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer. And uh, by the time you hear this, my review of the Dwayne Johnson vehicle Rampage will be up on the website. So that's sweet.
0: <laughs> Relevant to our interests. Uh, you can also contact us. And if you have a question for Dominic or LaToya, and don't use Twitter as people don't sometimes, um, you can send it here to tvparty@consequenceofsound.net. We are happy to pass along questions to answer questions on the air, ear for your thoughts, all of that stuff.
3: You can leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Podchaser, whatever your podcast platform may be. TV Party is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequencesound.net.
0: This show is recorded and produced in Chicago, Illinois, and recorded and engineered by this one fellow, Clint Worthington. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Dominic and LaToya for being here. Thank you to Dominic for logging into his WWE e-network thingy on my television so we could experience all of this splendor and I, i don't know thanks to chicago for having it fucking snow this week i don't know what else to say
3: yeah that sounds about right it's
0: bogus bye bye consequence podcast network